Chat GPT is all over LinkedIn right now if you consume sales content there, and you've probably seen a lot in the news. But to be honest, I haven't seen a lot of really practical use cases in sales until I came across our guest today and a LinkedIn post he put up where he talked about how it helped build personas. And Kyle Assey, he's regional vice president of acquisition at MongoDB, so he's kind of a big deal, was a top rep at a couple other companies you uh, might recognize, one of them being Qualtrics, but the dude has just crushed it in his career. And we're going to dig into chat GPT and how to reduce buyer friction and bias. So I'm super excited for this one. Before we get into the episode, my name is Jason Bay. You can call me Bay. I'm host of Outbound Squad, and we believe in helping reps and sales teams turn complete strangers into paying customers. So everything from outbound and landing the meeting to selling, running discovery, uh, calls, demos, negotiating deals, all that kind of stuff. So if you're a rep or a sales leader, leading reps, doing those things, you're definitely in the right place. So Kyle, again, I met him, big fan of his content on LinkedIn. And one of the things that we're going to dig into today, among other things, is this whole chat GPT thing. He runs us through some prompts that he used to build out a persona matrix in literally like less than five minutes, an exercise that he would normally task a rep to do over two or three coaching sessions one-on-one when they're onboarding, maybe five to 10 hours of homework. So he's going to run us through that. And we spend the majority of the time talking about buyer bias. So what do buyers expect and the bias they have towards salespeople in discovery calls, in demo, when they're negotiating, during outbound? We're going to talk about unhealthy friction in a deal cycle versus healthy friction. He's going to give a ton of very tactical things that you can literally start using right away in your sales calls. So without further ado, let's get to the interview with Kyle. So we met in a way that I meet a lot of people in our space, actually, is that I kept seeing your LinkedIn content. I was like, oh, this guy's content is fire. Seems like a decent dude. Like, we got to get him on the podcast. <laughs> and he accepted yeah. the invite, and uh, I'm looking forward to digging in, dude. And here, here we are. Hopefully, uh, <laughs> hopefully, my LinkedIn posts don't completely misrepresent who I actually am. But I think I'm a decent yeah. dude. So we, we can go with that. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you first, because you put something up on ChatGPT yesterday. And I don't know about you, anytime I see something related to ChatGPT and sales, it's always grabs my attention. And you had put out this little guide. And I'm curious if you could share a little bit more about what it was and how you're thinking about ChatGPT, like with your team and things like that. And then I would love your take on just like AI and sales in general, being someone that's been uh, been in the game for so long. Yeah, so I, I hesitated to do it because I've gotten so sick of the threads on Twitter and LinkedIn that are like, chat GPT is the most powerful tool ever and 99% are using it wrong. Here's how. And I'm like, nobody knows how yet. It's still brand new. That's so stupid. And it's just hyperbole. Yeah. But um, I have played around with it because I, I want to be up to date. I want to I want to understand what's new. Otherwise, I'll become mm-hmm. that dinosaur sales leader that isn't modern and I'm out all those, all those terrible things that we make fun of people for. And so I thought about, well, what? I wonder if I could feed it what I would feed a rep for a training and mm-hmm. onboarding. Could I walk ChatGPT through a typical AE onboarding and could it create a quality output for what a buyer persona cares about? how we help, how, how your product might help them. 
what would be emotionally appealing to them? And then could it take the way I teach email messaging with emotional relevance? And could it build out templates that would basically hit my standard of quality for emotionally mm-hmm. relevant, short, easy read emails? So I, I walked chat GPT through it and it gave me an output that was as good or better than anything that I, I or a rep I was working with at MongoDB could create. And that's when I realized I'm on to something here because this used to take me probably two or three full coaching sessions plus five to 10 hours of homework for us to go research buyer personas, industries, understand how the product helps these people. And then on top of that, how to craft good messaging. And I just did this in two minutes. This is pretty cool. This is valuable. So I shared it out. Yeah. Response is really cool. A lot of people benefit from it. And I think that's really important with AI in general. It's not here to replace our learning. It's here to accelerate our learning. So while I can now go help a rep take these three coaching sessions and hours of work and do it in two minutes, they still need to go master the content and get comfortable on a call with it. So accelerate, not replace. Okay. Let's, I have to, I didn't realize it was quite, that's drastic, dude. Like two to three hour coaching sessions, 10 to 15 hours of work. And just so we're talking about the same thing, is this the work that an account executive would normally do? Uh, Hey, you're selling to ABC persona, go consume all of our onboarding information so that you know about what their typical priorities are and the problems that we solve and, you know. Uh, standard kind of triggers that we might look for to start conversations. Is it that kind of stuff? That, that's exactly that, right. That's, okay. Yeah. So think about so, like your enablement team giving you a buyer persona document and they're typically yeah. pretty cliche, pretty generic. Yeah. The output from chat GPT was a buyer persona matrix that was fairly detailed on what these different titles that we sell to care about as it relates to what MongoDB sells. And I could do this for any company that I can define the value proposition for. Holy shit. Okay. Do you want to walk us through kind of the, and let us know where to download the the document too, if you want to share the link, but what were like, what did you feed chat GPT? What did you give it in order for it to spit that information out? Because I think that part's yeah. important to understand is that chat GPT or any kind of AI, it's, it's sort of a garbage in garbage out kind of situation like you have to have good information to 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 like point it in the right direction essentially but like what did you put into chat gpt so i started by teaching chat gpt the value propositions of what mongodb offers so i explained that it helps developers develop faster get to market faster um, remove the burden of having to worry about scalability, all the things that if you look at MongoDB's website, you could, you could pull from. So I said, here's what I sell. Here's the outcomes it drives. My second prompt was, who are the titles that I should be selling this to? And then it spit out. And I, this is more of a check for me to see if I knew what it was talking about because I know who we sell to. It's yeah. uh, engineering, it's product leaders, it's a little bit in IT. Uh, and it's it sent back to me the exact personas that we care about. Okay, cool. Step one, good. Personas identified. Then my next prompt, trying to remember how, I'm trying to remember exactly what it was. It was for these titles, as it relates to the outcomes that I gave you in step one, help me understand what they care about. Or no, sorry. It was just what do they care about? How do they spend their time? What stresses them out? And then how could MongoDB help them based on what I gave you in step one? 
and then I gave it very specific directions. So you return it to me in a in a table format where each persona was the row and each column was the what they care about, how they spend their time, what they're stressed about, and then the MongoDB value proposition. And so then it returned to me the list of the personas with the really good columns full of what they care about, how they spend their time, how we could help them. And then my final prompt, oh, go ahead, do you have something to, to ask there? No, I'm just in shock, honestly. <laughs> like I, had, I, I downloaded the document. I haven't had a chance to look at it yet. And also hearing it from you because like you have some legitimacy. <laughs> You're not like a, a, a marketer that's not in SaaS selling something completely different that's saying like, it's like, no, like you do this stuff on a daily basis. Um, I'm just, I'm kind of in shock to be honest, yeah. dude. I, I, I was too when I did it, right? Because then it, it got, it, the, the next level was I said, okay, now for each of these four personas, I want you to write four emails and here's the structure I want you to use. The first sentence should be emotionally relevant, which means it needs to relate to something that they care about or are concerned about or stressed about. The second sentence needs to be, I think it was the, the, the specific value proposition of how MongoDB helps related to how we can do it better than how they're currently doing it. And then the final sentence is a call to action, asking for, for time to meet. And then I said, uh, the email can be no more than 150 words, and it should be written at the fifth grade reading level. And then it gave me uh, almost like, you need to go personalize the emails. I'm not going to go load these into outreach or sales loft and blast them out. Mm. But it gave me emotionally relevant first sentences that would work at a decent scale. It gave me a pretty good value proposition that showed the contact how their current state would be improved with MongoDB with a call to action. They were all short. They were all easy to read. So what I've learned with ChatGPT is if I just went and said, hey, I work for MongoDB, tell me who I sell to what and how I and write me emails for them. I would have gotten really generic and garbage stuff, kind of like we see a lot of the comments on LinkedIn now where people are using ChatGPT and you can tell immediately. Yeah. But I was yep. really, really specific. Here are the outcomes I drive. Who were their personas? Yeah. Which persona? Here are the exact things I want to understand about them. And then for the email, it wasn't write me a good cold email. It was write me an email. And here's exactly what the first sentence is, the second sentence, all the way through, giving it very defined parameters. And so the advantage here for a sales leader or for a rep that's pretty proficient in any aspect of the sales motion, you can now go teach your proficiency clearly to AI chat GPT or others and it can then go do a lot of what you used to do manually exponentially faster than you could yeah the reason why i'm in so much shock right now is when i start working with a company this is literally the first thing i do with them because nothing against sales enablement people i love them i'm a huge fan of sales enablement but the personas are so generic and if anyone's gone through which i'm also a big fan of um Oh God, I'm totally spacing their uh, their name. What is it? Command of the message. Uh, yeah, force management. Force management. Yep. Huge fan. But what you get is a 30 page document with all these value drivers and problems. It's good stuff. But I'm like yep. that. We got to turn that into an email that's four or five sentences long. We got to turn yep. find a way to convert that into a talk track and like the situational context is missing. So that's usually what I'm doing when I work with the companies. We're workshopping messaging and essentially we're just taking all this great documents they have and call recordings and all this other stuff which did you try putting transcripts of calls into 
Not yet. Oh, that, I wonder if that could be another really cr- crazy thing where it's like, hey, take this gong or chorus call that is with that persona, like a like a discovery or an intro call, and like upload the transcript. I'm sure you could train it too. Um, but dude, this takes hours of work of me doing to prep for that meeting. We get a big group of people into a workshop, and we can typically like rip out one persona, maybe two, if the group is really like understands customer centric messaging in an hour period. That's a huge resource suck. And the output really is relying on me being able to kind of piece everything together from what they have. And you just outlined a way to do that in a couple of minutes if you have the right information. That's why I'm like kind of blown away by this. (laughs) And then what's cool about it is then you think about where we then go add a lot of value. Because where ChatGPT is going to really struggle is anything forward-looking or anything super recent. So for a tech company that has significant and new differentiators against the competition, that's not going to populate there. And so where you're going to be working with these customers, you're going to bring them before you even meet with them. Hey, here's some persona. We're like 90% of the way there. Now let's tweak the value pitch. Let's just change the messaging to be so specific to what we do different and what we do better than the competition because I think that's the, that's probably the main gap right now I got with ChatGPT. I could then go, I could go give this deliverable to Oracle. I could give it to Cockroach. I could give it to really any database competitor. And it would be valuable for them because it's still high level enough to be relevant across different companies. Where we can yeah. get really good though is get the foundation quickly and then go a whole lot deeper into our unique, holistic, and comparative differentiators and those are things that ChatGPT is currently not able to do. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting take because essentially what I'm hearing from you, and I, I sort of agree, correct me if I'm wrong, is that you mentioned right at the top, replace, not accelerate. And I think of other people have made this analogy with the Iron Man suit. It's going to enhance what you're doing. And it's it's basically going to help you get 80, 90% of the way there, which I think that's the hardest part, honestly, is starting for most people. So if I'm... Mm-hmm spoon feeding for lack of a better analogy, a talk track to a rep that's 80% of the way there. It's so much easier to edit and add to something than to create something from scratch. Yep. So instead okay. of spending all that time on the 80% that isn't differentiating. Now you get to go spend yeah. a whole bunch of time on that incremental 10% that wins or loses deals. Right. Yeah. Because so much of enablement onboarding is just getting reps to be able to seem like they have a pulse in a room with a call with a cust- in a room with a customer, right? It's it's not yeah. going to help them win. It's going to help them not stand out in a bad way. What if we can go get them to that level quickly, yeah. and then spend all of our time, energy, resources on the that gap that is the difference between the hits quota occasionally and that that rep that she hits every quarter, one hundred twenty percent year over year. Yeah. Oh, dude, that's killer, dude. Okay, so let's bookmark the chat GPT topic. And <laughs> what we're going to talk about next might connect to this. I don't, I don't know, dude. I don't know what kind of weird shit you're doing on, on your, during, your, during your work time, dude. Um, <laughs> I don't know that anybody does. Hopefully my boss, hey, Tim, if you're listening to this, I am doing good stuff. Good stuff is yeah. going on. Um, so when I asked you in our prep call, which I always ask people, I say, you know, what's your sales superpower? What do you feel like you do like really, really well compared to other peers that, you know, and you said understanding the buyer's point of view and understanding their bias. 
And that's always something I love to hear because I, it's just something that I preach and, and there are lots of people that do, but just like being more buyer centric. And I, and I think what's hard about that is people might not really know, like, it sounds really cool <laughs> to be buyer centric, but how do we do that? And what are some of the core principles? Um, so do you want to talk a little bit more about like, what does it mean to be buyer centric or customer centric? If that's even the way that you think about it and just kind of set the foundation for why is it important to like completely flip this around, and get on the other side of the, you know, zoom screen, I guess for, for most people and like really think about things from the buyer perspective. Yeah. Cause I don't think any, any rep or sales that is ever going to push back on the importance of knowing your buyer, right? Like speak in their language, yeah. know what they care about. All, all of that makes sense. Where I've really gotten interested is the, the psychological aspect of all the bias biases, whatever the correct terminology is that buyers have when they're talking to a sales rep, because Let's face it, we've kind of earned it, right? Salespeople for a long time have done things mm-hmm. the wrong way. We've been overly aggressive. We've been sometimes dishonest. We've been misleading. And so we've built up across every part of the deal cycle. When we say certain things, the buyers have their walls up and they're not listening. They're not as receptive. They're, they're skeptical. And uh, without really understanding, okay, I'm entering a discovery conversation or I'm entering a demo what are the unspoken concerns that the buyer has that I have to address before they even hear my message? If we're not thinking that way, we're going to go deliver an awesome demo. We're going to hit all the right notes. We're going to solve their problems. And the buyer's not going to notice or retain any of it because they tuned out the second that you validated one of their biases and the rest of the message didn't matter. So that, that's why I started to care a lot about it. Yeah. Was there a moment? I mean, I'm looking at this little graphic I think you had in your site where it was like number one AE at Qualtrics 2017. And you have an arrow pointing down. Like that's when I started using like the frameworks that I'm about to teach you in this course or whatever it was that that, yeah. that page was about. Is that around the time for you that you started thinking about that? Or has, has it been a more recent thing where you kind of looked back? Like what got you interested in this, I guess, is like, is, is my question. And how did, how did, what was that process like of starting to like, see what was going on for lack of a better way of saying it? You know, it's been super iterative. One of my first aha moments that I now tie to buyer psychology, I definitely didn't then, but this is right about when I started to get it, I guess, started to sell successfully. It's I began to notice this unhealthy friction in deals where I'm, I'm all about challenging the buyer. I'm all about reframing uh, capabilities for or re- reframing requirements. I'm not against healthy friction, but I noticed this really unhealthy friction in a lot of areas. Like when, when a buyer had a really firm idea of what they wanted and they're desperately wanting to understand if we can offer it and we still drag them to drag them through back to back hour long discovery calls before we do any kind of a demo. That's unnecessary friction. When we get onto the third call, we've done two discoveries and we spend the first 30 minutes telling the buyer what they've already told us. And you can just feel the tension. They're like, yeah, Yeah. I know. I told you all of this stuff. But we still go through that entire slide because our sales manager told us to. That's unnecessary friction. And so I began to realize, look, like I, the way that we sell has really good components, 
but it needs to adapt based on where the buyer is at in their journey. So I began to develop a, a sales methodology that took the great of like a command of the message and made it a bit more mm-hmm. flexible. Now, years later, I tie that back to, yeah, it's buyer psychology. When I'm, when I'm going into a discovery and the buyer is just sitting there, they're thinking the entire time, I just want to know as quickly as possible if you think, if you can help me and how you might be able to help me. So I know if I should keep talking to you or go look for a different solution. And so while we're doing all of this discovery to qualify them, to understand them, so we can understand if we can help them, they're tuning out and getting more frustrated by the minute. When a buyer says, well, what's, what's the price? From a psychological standpoint, they don't want to waste their time if you're 30x their budget. They don't want to waste their time. There's no way it's going to fit in. And so when you say, oh, there's a lot that goes into our pricing, um, I can't even share that with you until later, their distrust spikes. They're like, well, you don't want to tell me because your pricing is made up. You want to exploit me. You want to charge as much as you can later when you find out how much money I have to offer. Or you don't, you're not confident in your price. So I, I, I began now to tie all of these points of friction back to what the buyer is thinking at each stage the biases they have from going through countless sales processes, whether it's buying a car or buying SaaS, and how most reps go into a sales call and almost immediately validate the biases the buyer has against them and makes the uphill battle even harder to overcome. I'm so excited to dig into this, dude. Are you uh, familiar with Ramit Sethi? Do you know who he is? Uh, I will teach mm-hmm. you to be rich. Okay. I'm not. Uh, he just, just came out with a Netflix show longtime blogger like he talks about he came up with the phrase invisible scripts which i use a lot and it's like our buyers have invisible scripts and one thing i always ask an audience when i talk to them is like what do you think your buyers invisible scripts are when you insert blank in in my case a lot of times it's outbound right um and it kind of sounds like the exercise that you did is just like what are all of the things that they're thinking before we dig into specifics with the calls you mentioned unhealthy friction and then healthy friction. Can you provide some more context into the difference between those? So people kind of understand, because there is a time and place for friction and Mm -hmm. there is, uh, (laughs) I would say as a whole salespeople, we should probably have less friction (laughs) in our, in our uh, sales cycles. But yeah, can you, can you explain the difference between those two and why, why one is preferable over the other and maybe some examples, that kind of thing? Yeah. So an unhealthy friction would come from a super, uh, a very heavy interrogation for discovery, where the yeah. buyer still doesn't know what you do, and you're just hammering them with question after question after question, and the frustration begins to mount. And sometimes the buyer will even get to the point where they just say something like, dude, like you asked me for this call. Stop asking mm-hmm. me questions. Tell me what you do. Like, why do you want to meet with me? And I've heard that from executives. That's unhealthy friction. Uh, Healthy friction is you're in discovery and the buyer talks about what they think their ideal after state should be. He said, that's interesting. I I agree that's part of the way there. Let me walk you through how a leader in your space is approaching this a little bit differently. And let's see if it doesn't spark some ideas for how you might change what you're aspiring to. So it's a little bit of friction because I'm basically saying, hey, your goal after state is part of the way there, but you need to think bigger. If you don't think bigger, you're going to fail because your competition, they're thinking bigger and they're executing towards that. That's not necessarily comfortable to go tell an executive. There's a little bit of friction there, 
but it's healthy because you're pushing them to try to get on more. And so if you kind of think about the differences there, the unhealthy friction was very sales focused. I need to ask you questions so I can better understand you so I can sell you something. The healthy friction is I'm going to push you to think a little bit differently because you are, you are capable of more than you think you are. I might have a solution to help propel you there. But regardless of if you buy my solution or not, you should be thinking bigger. If not, you're going to be regretting it two years from now. Yeah, it's kind of like any coach that I've hired, uh, business coaches. The interactions I have with them in the coaching environment are very, they're asking a lot of questions, but they're trying to help me diagnose what the problem is. And they're bringing in a lens that I don't have because they've seen my situation applied hundreds of times across many different contexts. Is that fair to say? What do you, what do you think about if we look at discovery, for example, that it, it should almost feel a little bit more like a coaching call with a prospect where you're guiding them through your questions versus interrogating and I would just love your perspective on discovery in general, because I think that what's an easy trap to fall into that I've done many times, especially earlier in my career is that, oh, I'm asking lots of questions. That's what I'm supposed to do in sales, right? You're supposed to ask questions and listen. And that frustrates the hell out of executives when you do shit like that. Um, mm-hmm. So I asked you like three questions there. Well, let's just kind of backtrack. Uh, so like with the discovery piece, Thinking of it like guiding someone through the questions and coaching, what do you think of that? Is that the right way to look at this? Is there a different analogy that you might use just for for reps listening? I love it. I, uh, my favorite way to do that is adding context for questions. Uh, you, you'll find mm. that somebody's desire to answer your questions increases dramatically when you're explaining to them why you're asking the question and why it's going to benefit them, or you're teaching them something as part of the question. So if I'm asking somebody, hey, how, how are you forecasting your deals? Or how are you choosing what deals, what, which deals to review? The reason I ask is most companies just filter biggest to smallest, start at the biggest. The problem with that is a lot of the times the biggest deals are not realistic. And so they waste their time on whales when they could be spending time on meaningfully sized and more winnable opportunities. But anyway, that's what we're seeing. Super curious how you're currently handling that. So now I'm, I'm adding a little bit of value. I'm teaching something that might be a mistake they're falling into. I'm showing that I actually understand the world of a sales leader and forecasting, but I'm still asking the same question. So yes, yeah, a little bit longer. It's not short and sweet to the point, but I'm adding context to take away some of the friction to the question compared to me saying, so how do you forecast? Or how do you put deals to review? Yeah. Which I, as you were asking the question the first time, before you added the context, I, I was thinking... How would I answer that question? I would be on guard answering that question because what I think that you're going to tell me is that I'm doing it wrong versus you sharing an insight around here's how here's how other best in class sales teams and sales executives, here's how they think about this. How does that compare to you? Um, Armand Farouk over at 30 Minutes of Presidents Club, he always says, don't ask naked questions. So like the context, I feel like is like, I love that. Can you Can you tell us a little bit more about that technique and how you, like how you use that with your reps or how you recommend reps use it. Because like what you did there, I don't want to gloss over. There's like a lot just in that question yeah. in the way that you phrased it, asked it, the context that you provided, all that kind of stuff. So a good way to prepare to actually do this is when you're preparing for your discoveries, spend a lot of time, not just thinking about what you're going to ask, but also what you're going to teach and what you're teaching. It can be anything from industry best practices, 
It can be your tech, your software's best practices. Uh, it can even be customer stories of people having uh, success with your, your, your solution. And then when you're looking at the questions you want to ask before the call, go think, okay, so the things I could teach the buyer, the context I could share with the buyer, what is the right question to map that to? And so if I find a really good customer story, that's all about how a company was able to improve their hiring goals, more get more accurate hiring goals because they dialed in their forecast. When I asked a question like, hey, how are you looking at forecasting six months out? The reason I ask is companies that have nailed that, have been able to hire on time within budget and exceed quota by understanding six months out instead of just the current quarter, right? So I'm, all I'm trying to do is just like I'm going to plan to extract, I'm going to plan to add, and then it's just a matter of time, the right value add to the right question to give context throughout the conversation. Yeah. So I love that, dude. Um, so with this, how do you think about the balance between the adding versus extracting types of questions? You know, I try not to get too rigid or formulaic with that. I think at the end of the day, my goal is for it to feel a lot less like a sales call and a lot more like a conversation. And you'll find that even if you're just adding valuable context to a couple of your questions in a conversation, the other ones are going to be received much better, right? Like it's it's, (laughs) because face it right now, most reps are leading off their call with, so tell me about your role. And the execs like, are you, are you serious? What yeah. part of my role am I going to talk about? Or they're saying, so what's keeping you up at night? Like, that's none of your oh, business. Oh, God. That's like, the worst one. Like, yeah. we're, 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 so if you just start adding a couple customer stories per call or a couple industry insights and you tie that to a good problem-based discovery question, you're already going to change your buyer's mindset. You're going to impact the buyer's psychology. Go add a couple of those to your call. See how it changes. And then you're going to find yourself naturally adding context to almost all of your questions, even when you're talking to your friends, because it makes conversations much more natural and uh, much, much more, um, you, you get where you want to get to faster. Got it. So if we kind of, if we kind of wrap up the discovery piece and, and step back, the original kind of theme here was understanding the buyers, uh, their bias coming into this situation and then doing something different. And if I took this away correctly, your buyer is essentially coming in expecting to be heavily interrogated, qualified, and to really basically learn nothing in that call. And you're basically flip that on its head and you're saying, hey, I'm going to make sure that they walk away from something from this call, even if there's not a next step, that was still a valuable use of their time. Did I get all that right? That's perfectly said. Dude, love it. Let's talk about... I don't know. Do you lump, because uh, the kind of next one for you was presentations. Do you lump demo and mm-hmm. presentations into some kind of the same place? I do. So <laughs> this is an interesting one because we just did a masterclass for a group. We had a guy, uh, his name's Dan Strauss. He was a top uh, enterprise and strat seller at Zoom Info and Chorus. And he taught us his demo framework and it was, real, it was just killer. But I'm curious your take from the buyer's perspective. Uh, what are buyers expecting coming into a demo? What's their bias? Yeah, their their biases. As soon as you ask the question, "Can you see my screen?" they're they're ready <laughs> to be bored, absolutely bored out of their mind for the next sixty minutes, right? Um, like I, I've sat through plenty of presentations now from vendors, often in a competitive mm-hmm. cycle where we looked at multiple, 
And all I ended up wanting to hear from them, I was like, let's make this a 10 minute call. Just tell me how you're different and then prove it because they all sounded the same. Their, their customer logo slides had all had Facebook, all had Apple, all had Microsoft because they probably have one or two small departments using it. Their growth story looked the same. And then they walk through the demo and they all start with the high level overview, the 30,000 foot view. And to yeah. some extent, all offerings are somewhat commoditized. Everything, mm-hmm. like when you look at your competitors, they're going to offer 80 to 90% of what you offer. And so the buyer is already getting bored. Now you're showing them things they've already seen because you're starting a high level. And so now they're validated their bias of, oh, I'm bored and you're the same as the competition. They tune out. They're not even listening when you cover your differentiators. And then the call ends with, well, what, what, what do you cost? And now before you know it, it's, well, yeah, but we looked at your competitor and they're the same and they cost 20% less. And then you're saying, oh, yeah, 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 no, this is my first price. I can, I can sharpen my pencil. And then before you know it, you're just negotiating a price and you're either winning or losing and it's just a complete disaster. But those are the biases that buyers have for the demo. So being extremely bored, getting the, the NASCAR slide, all that kind of stuff. Okay. So what do we, uh, I love that you added, by the way, I just want to know how you're different and then prove it. Like every executive, I, and I learned this the hard way, which it sounds like you, you shared something kind of similar. The very first thing they want is proof points. Almost every executive I would talk to, who have you worked with that's similar to us? What kind of outcomes did you get? Let's start with that. So we're making sure we're not wasting our time. Do I recognize this company? Is the situation similar? No, that's probably going to be a deal breaker for them then. You know? Um, So how you're different than prove it. So what am I doing as a seller to kind of really just do the opposite of what the buyer's uh, expecting? Yeah. So there's a lot of really great advice and demos out there. Some of those super basic things are lead out with a bang. Like start with something that really captures their attention. Um, but mm-hmm. I'll, I'll go a little bit deeper into how how you should be overcoming this. So the, the first one is to not bore them. Like cut out almost all your slides. Okay, The only yeah. slides you should be showing up front are slides to deepen your understanding of things that you missed out on discovery. So more of a discovery slide to help close the gaps. Or to cover something that you need them to understand that you're not going to show them in the demo. Because the demo should not be a wall-to-wall product tour. So a slide is a good opportunity to say, hey, we're not going to show this to you because, frankly, everybody has it. But I want you to know that we have it too. We're not the odd ones out. I just don't want to waste time in the demo going through things you probably yeah. saw from all of our competitors. Can I can I ask you real quick? Yeah. Are, you that, are you that explicit about it? Do you kind of have a little bit of fun like that where like, hey, I got to show you this. Like, are, like what you just narrated, is that kind of similar to how you would interact with the buyer? A hundred percent. One, of my, one yeah. of my pieces of advice for demos is label everything. If it's table stakes, tell them. Look, I know everybody can do this. Mm-hmm. I just want you to know that we have it. I'm not spending much time here because you've seen it before. 
Okay. Compared to most reps where they'll, they'll show something that everybody else does and they'll act like it's the coolest feature of all time. Like I remember at Qualtrics, I had reps showing the most basic question types, the most basic display logic, acting like it's this yeah. cutting edge innovation. And you reach to the buyer, like, if you think this is cool, then your product must suck. Right. Yeah. So label, label everything. And then when I'm showing things like, like a differentiator, I'm making sure that I'm even, I'm going as far as to say, Hey, look, like, my competitors do this, but here's how we do it better. Here's why it matters for you specifically. And here's a customer story that validates that it's going to make the impact that I'm saying. And then for unique differentiators, I'm calling that it as well. And only we do this. And this is one I'm going to spend a little bit of time on because this one is a trap for you as a seller. Because the second you say only we do this, that gives your buyer skepticism. They're thinking, well, why do only you do it? It must not be that important. You have to defend yeah. either, hey, we, only we do this because our engineering team is three times bigger than our closest competitor. They wish they could do it. They're trying to do it. Someday they might be able to do it. They can't yet. So I'm defending it by having more resources or I'm defending it because we're taking a completely different approach to the market. We're saying, hey, we actually view the problem you have differently than our competition. And here's why. Now you have to defend your approach to the problem. Otherwise, the whole only we do this sounds gimmicky. And it's like, well, if only you do it, why would it matter to me? Because surely if it was that important, everybody would offer it. Yeah, I label everything in a demo. Love that. So a couple quick questions around a lot of your approach. It's very, I would describe it as very challenger. It's got a very clear perspective in terms of the perspective you take around the stuff that you teach. Um, is that, is that something that MongoDB, is that part of just the culture? Like how do, how do new reps learn that? And the reason that I ask is that, uh, I find a lot of the perspective that we have on, on like how things are done. So for example, I'll give you like a practical one that probably everyone listening could, could understand is sales training. The very first slide I opened with on the demo call, I call it a demo call, but it's not really, I'm not demoing software, um, is a stat from Rain Group that 80 to 95% of sales training is ineffective after 90 to 120 days. And the everyone kind of chuckles when they see that and we have a discussion around it. And what I'm trying to do is get them to see that it's not just about training. There's some other stuff that you have to do. I'm not just going to talk to you about training today. There's a whole reinforcement component to it. There's all, there's playbooks that there's documentation, et cetera. I have a perspective on it because I've been doing it for a while. And I've just like, I've gone through this a bunch. I'm just wondering for you guys, it seems like you have very clear perspective on this stuff. And I'm sure your reps do. Is that something you have to teach specifically? Like here's our perspective on the industry and here's some common logic that's out there that, we just think very differently from like, how, how do you convey that? How do you get a rep to embody that? Yeah. So maybe I'll, I'll start with how I learned it and how I've developed it. Cause it starts back in my time at Qualtrics. I had to go mm-hmm. challenge customers because they thought they needed a survey tool. They thought they needed to collect data and they could do that for a few hundred bucks a year. And I was asking for a whole lot more than that. So I had to go <laughs> challenge them and I had to reframe it to look like if all you want is your NPS score, you shouldn't pay a cent. Use Google Forms, collect the data, throw it in an online calculator, it'll get your MPS score. There, done. No implementation, no money. You checked off the box of what you think you need. 
Now, if you actually want to understand what's driving your MPS score, if you actually want to understand how to impact and improve it and actually end up retaining more customers and making more money, you're going to need a whole lot more. So I'm challenging them on what a solution actually looks like. At MongoDB now, we're trying to challenge people to think completely differently how they store data, going from the old school relational way to non-relational. Like that's a major shift. We have to go challenge how engineers think about building applications. And so regardless of what company you're working for, go look back at the main things your product does differently. Start there. I'm going to say start with the product, which sounds a little bit counterintuitive, but start with the product features or solution features that are different than the competition. And now think to yourself, if I'm a buyer, how would I need to change my mind about how I do my job to agree that I need this differentiator? Now you have the path to go challenge somebody to accept your differentiated solution and buy into your way of doing it, which would lead to making a decision in your favor in a sales evaluation. Got it. And then the last part to that, I'm assuming what you shared earlier is the validating through a customer story. So it's, it's kind of like, don't believe me. <laughs> yeah. Don't believe me. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. Um, it's uh, the, the pattern is always, here's why this part of our solution is different. Here's why mm-hmm. it matters to you personally. Here's how it yeah. matters to your company. Mm-hmm. Here's the evidence that I'm not full of crap. If you can bring yeah. all those things together, you're going to have a motivated individual because it's going to impact them individually. You're going to have an enabled individual because now they can go sell to their, their leaders on why it matters to the business, not just to them. And they're actually going to believe you, which is a <laughs> pretty hard for a salesperson to get anybody to believe them. Those proof points are how you get there. Got it. Do you find that this may be kind of a silly question because you've probably been sharing customer stories for a long time, probably for most of your sales career. I find that most reps actually don't use any customer stories at all outside of just saying, this is a cool logo that we work with, which is not a story. Saying that you work with Facebook is not a customer story. Um, Is the use of a customer story sort of in and of itself, a way to kind of disrupt the normal pattern that a buyer might expect? Is that how you think of it? Or do you think of it in some sort of other way? And I would love your take on just like, what is a good customer story? What does that even sound like? Because I think there's a lot of confusion from people that aren't being taught this, you know, from their sales leaders or, or their enablement team. Man, it's a, it's a tragedy that more reps aren't using them. I hope that my teams are using them. I better double click on that. <laughs> um, because people, people respond to emotion. Stories yeah. are what evoke emotion in people. And so it's not just sharing a customer story. It's telling the customer story in an impactful way. It's, it's drawing a, a parallel between, oh, this customer was miserable because they were doing what you were doing. They hated yeah. their life because they were missing the goals that you're trying to reach. Then our solution came in and bridged them to this amazing world where they solve the problem you care about, the problem your boss cares about. Now they're heroes. Now they're having success because we were able to make them successful using our solution. Now look at how they're doing. So a customer story, it's not just pulling up a slide and saying, oh yeah, uh, this uh, Walmart had a 322% ROI in our solution. It's <laughs> literally a story. Here's why their yeah. life was miserable. Here's how we solved that. Here's how great their life is now. 
drawing as many parallels to your customer as possible. So if you're a rep listening to this call, you're probably thinking, well, marketing hasn't given me enough good customer stories. I'm just going to say, I don't care. Own it. Go get your own customer stories. Go close some deals, make their life better, master that story. The best stories I tell as a seller are the stories from my experience selling to customers and seeing that transformation happen. Very rarely yeah. in my career as an AE did I rely on the one-page case study that I got from the Atlanta Marketing. I was always telling stories from the people that I knew that I was working with, my teammate was working with. There are plenty of ways to go build your own arsenal of customer stories. If you're not doing that right now, make that your number one priority because stories convince people that your solution works like you're saying it does. Love it. Okay. I want to ask you about something here in the last couple of minutes around how do you think about if we kind of weave all of this stuff together? I know we've spent a lot of time on the discovery and demos and that sort of stuff, but when you think about interacting with the individual or the individuals, on the other end, how do you think about how well you're connecting with them, like on a human to human level in the call? So like the, a word I think of is fun. I noticed that like we've laughed a little bit in this call. It makes it, it, it I feel like I, I feel like we're connecting, you know what I mean? And on, mm-hmm. on sales calls, I've noticed the same kind of thing when I have a really there's just a vibe that you can get when you're like really having like a real conversation with someone and you're totally being yourself. And there's maybe a little bit of laughing if that's your style or whatever. I'm just curious, like, how do you think about the, or what do you teach to your reps around? Cause that's often, I, I see this missing in calls sometimes where I'm like, dude, you're just not connecting with the other person on a human to human level. You're talking at them. They're answering your questions, but you're not really connecting. It's yeah. kind of a vague question. <laughs> no, it's a good question. Um, I remember I had a rep that was just really rigid. The way they acted on sales calls was completely different than how they interacted with me, with their teammates. They just got super formal and they just weren't mm-hmm. human. And so I remember joining a call with them and we were in a conference room. The camera wasn't on, fortunately. And to prove a point, like I started like kicking my chair around, throwing a marker across the wall, like having fun. It was, it was ridiculous. Don't get me wrong. It was ridiculous. But my point was I am, I'm running this discovery for you. I'm not going to brag too much, but I was crushing it. And I was doing <laughs> that while leaning back in my chair, feet up, throwing a marker at the rep, just having a good time because I was just yeah. talking. I was just having a conversation. And so reps, they get – if your goal is to go have a sales call – you're not going to connect. You're going to go validate their biases. Their walls are going to go up. You're going to ask them self-serving questions and you're, you're not going to have a good time. If you go in with true natural curiosity, you come in with some things that you can share that will add value to them, whether they buy from you or not. And if you just relax and have a conversation based around those couple of things, then you're going to find yourself connecting. I think the one other thing I'll add is and this is probably the fault of sales leaders. I'll take ownership for it too. They're, they're so quick to go build that business case, go prove to the yeah. CFO why they should buy. And they're like trying to convince this manager or director level of all this profitability and growth. And the, the person's like, dude, I just want to like not get pipped or I'd love to get a bonus this year. And so in yeah. addition to being human, 
find out first how you help the individual you're talking to, what's their win. Don't even try to go sell the economic victory, the CFO victory, the business case victory. You can't work with them to develop that until you have their buy-in that your solution will make their individual life better. As soon as they feel like you're on their team, you want them to win individually and you're being a human, walls come down. You'll have much more comfortable conversations. You might laugh here and there. It'll be way more comfortable for both of you. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. It's uh, I remember in my first sales job, it was in 2008. I was in freshman in college going door to door selling house painting services and they had really good sales training. And, but I remember one of the sections was how to build rapport. And I didn't realize until I become a sales manager with him. Cause it was pretty intuitive to me. I'm introverted, but like I get how to just have a conversation with someone. And when I had reps, I was like, Oh wow. There's some people that like this is a completely foreign thing to them. And they go to an, a, to a very different place when they're on a sales call, like you said, you know, and what I'm hearing from you is it's like, it's kind of important to understand the psychology of that. And then to also model good behavior as a sales leader, where it's like, Hey, let's just like have a good time, dude. And um, I use the word fun because I, I think that we don't have enough fun in sales. It's such a serious, serious thing in so many sales environments I come into and I'm like, this just kind of is not fun. It's kind of sucks, dude. Like the way that we're going, like we can have fun and get shit done at the same time. (laughs) They're not mutually exclusive, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And I've tried to be, I was not a good example of this early in my career. I think I've gotten a lot better. Like now if I'm talking to one of my leaders and they're like, have really bad news and they're, they don't want to tell me their forecast is dropping. I'm like, let's chill. It's just database. It's just a database solution. We're just playing the sales game for big company. Like this is not a big deal. At Qualtrics, it was guys, this is just survey software. Like it's fine. This yeah. isn't life or death. Like it's fine. I'm okay with bad outcomes as long as we're doing our best. It's okay. And so people put a ton of pressure on themselves. And look, I get that I can kind of say that from a, a position of well, I've had pretty good success in my career. I've kind of built those fundamentals. But I'm telling you, if I'd realized that as a rep and just chilled. I would have had way more success faster because I worried so much about things that a month later didn't matter at all. I have lost sleep over things that looking back on are just absolutely ridiculous. So yeah, if you're not having fun, like check your environment. Maybe the company really sucks. You should look for a different place. I get that. Do that. Make a move. But yeah, sales should be fun. There's there's so much crap in sales. If you can't find a way to have some fun here and there along the way, then it's just not worth it. Yeah. Totally agree, dude. Um, we got to take off, man. This this has been a good conversation. I got I got a ton of takeaways. I I love the whole perspective of just reframing every oops every interaction that we have with a buyer and thinking first. What's the invisible script? What's the bias? Like, let's just think about what they're expecting first and making sure that we're not. I think you say confirming their bias. <laughs> you know, so uh, love that, dude. Learned a ton. I love the stuff that you talk about around adding context to your questions, um, how you're different and then prove it. The customer story piece, just reinforcing that I, I thought was really cool, man. Um, where can people go to connect with you? I know you share a lot of great content. You got some courses and like all, all kinds of other stuff. Feel free to uh, plug away, man. Where, where can where can people go find your stuff? Because you're putting some good stuff out there. Yeah, you can find me on, on LinkedIn. And then my, my website is salesintroverts.com. 
And so then it links out to a couple other pages where I've got my, my courses. I have a biopsychology course that goes way deeper that we talked about today. Then I've got my AE frameworks and I might or might not be working on my AI frameworks that'll be coming in the, the not so distant future. So it's, um, I'm having some fun. <laughs>